Okay, we have uh, said from the beginning, from, from the moment we started, we've said that what Genesis is, uh, is covenantal history. That is, it's, it's not designed to give you every historical fact and detail. It's not designed to explain exactly how creation took place. It's not designed to tell you everything that took place from the, from the origins of man uh, all the way through. Uh, it's, it's designed to explain the covenant and specifically the covenant God. And so we've, breaking, we, we've broken down this, uh, this book into this four-part outline here, creation, humanity, and sin, the start of it all, um, through the first four chapters of the book, and then the need for covenant people as we begin to see sin make its way out into the world and, and grow and increase. Um, we see this need for a covenant people to be established through which God can reveal His true nature and His true character to the world. And then what we've been studying for the majority of the year, all the way up until last week, is the establishment of the covenant people. This is the largest chunk of the book, um, walking through Abraham and his family. And now we shift to this last part, the incubation of a covenant people, where you'll take this small family that has begun to to grow into a larger one, and you're going to take them and we're going to learn about how they wind up out of the land that God has promised and how in that they grow into this nation. Or I guess it's going to lead us right up to the point where they grow into that nation. So we've come to this last section that we'll kick off for a little bit tonight. And remember the idea being to reveal who the true God is. Genesis is written in a world in which there's beliefs in all kinds of different gods. There's no question to them whether there is or is not a God. Everybody knows that there is the supernatural when Genesis is written. The question uh, that Genesis is trying to write is what is the true God like? And how is he different than everything else that you've heard? And, and is there, you know, like I said, for, for many, they believe that there's many gods. Um, so let me tell you what the one true God is like. That's what Genesis is about. Um, so the story will shift today. We've been studying Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob. The story shifts from Jacob to Jacob's sons today. And so for the rest of our time together, we'll be looking at Jacob's sons. Now, particularly the spotlight follows Joseph from here on out. Uh, A large portion of this book devoted towards his story. But it's if you think of this in terms of just Joseph's story, then you'll kind of miss the bigger picture of what's going on. This is the story not just of Joseph. This is the story of Jacob's sons. And and kind of all the sons are looked at a little bit. And there are three or four of them whose whose stories are highlighted. Joseph's the most as we make our way through the rest of this book here. Um, With Abraham, we saw, so there are these three kind of aspects of the promise that God made to him. He said, if you come and follow me, if you'll come and leave your, your land and your country, your, um, your family, if you'll lead them in and come follow me, then I'm going to bless you. And he says, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you into a great people. And through you, all the peoples of the world will be blessed. So when we follow the Abraham story, the land kind of takes the highlight there. As as Abraham makes the journey and the trek into the land, and God looks there and and, and promises, this land will belong to you and your people. And then Jacob, we begin to see this idea that they become a nation. Because for forever, Abraham has no sons. Then he has um, 
tube, it's sort of one through who the promise is going to come. And it's not until Jacob that actually that starts to expand out and now he's got 12 sons and you go, oh, this could actually happen now. Like this is, this is something where these guys are starting to grow. And when we come to Joseph and ja- the rest of Jacob's sons, we see the emphasis on the blessing as what God said starts to come true in small form, that God is going to use this people group to bless the whole world. And so we'll begin to see that unfold as we read through these things. We're in chapter 37 and then 39 tonight. But let's look at 37 and start off in the first four verses. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. So these are the sons of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. Remember, those are the two. There's Rachel and Leah, and then their maidservants, Bilhah and Zilpah. So they they all had sons. These are the sons of those two. Um, His father's wives and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, the, land, uh, the family has been back in the land that God had promised for about a decade now when this story starts. And these first four vo- uh, verses are kind of setting the stage for the big story that's about to take place over here. This is kind of giving you the context. Just, you know, this is the situation, is what the author is saying. And this is why things are going to unfold like they are. At 17 years old, Joseph, he, there's these three things. So the first is at 17 years old, Joseph is pastoring the flock, he's working in the fields with his brothers, and he brings back a bad report to his father about them. Something they did that they should not have done, something they did that was wrong, and Joseph tells his dad. And so, to, to them, already, there's, there's reason not to like him. He's a snitch. He's a tattletale, whatever it is. They're not big fans of Joseph. And then the second thing we hear is that Jacob loved Joseph more than all the others. The text says because he was the son of his old age. He was born in Jacob's old age. But, but you, have to, you have to think that uh, some of this at least has to do with the fact that Joseph is the only son, at first, the first son of Jacob's favorite wife, the wife that he truly loved, Rachel. And so because of that, that's the one, and and Rachel has died just a short time ago, giving birth to a second son, Benjamin. But Joseph is the first son of the favored wife, of the truly loved wife, and so he is the most favored son. Um, And then the third thing we see is that Jacob gives him this special coat. Um, Now the description actually in the Hebrew is pretty obscure. This word describing it is only used one other time, and we don't exactly know what it means there. Um, and then we can't find this word anywhere else in any other literature ever. So, so people struggle knowing exactly how to translate it. Um, more than likely, um, it does not mean many colors. Coat of many, what, what, what we've been told all, all our lives, this uh, coat of many colors, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, whatever it is, that's probably not what it's actually meaning. More than likely, if you look at the ESV footnote, if you have ESV, it says, like, long-sleeved. Or it could mean like long length. And, and what this appears to be, regardless of what it specifically is, this appears to be actually not a symbol of favor. Oh, you're my favorite. Here's a really cool coat. Um, but a, a actually like a mark of status. Um, like like the, the common day laborer wears like the short cloak. 
and the short sleeves so that they can work and so that they can move around and stuff. But management, those of higher status, they get like the longer sleeves and the longer cloak and all of those things. More than likely, this is Joseph working in the field with his brothers, comes back and gets a bad report, and, and he's the favorite anyway. And, and Jacob says, tell you what, you're kind of above that now. You don't have to work in those things anymore. There's, there's a chance that that's what's going on there. And, and so the, the uh, brothers hate him for this. He's the youngest. He's, other than, again, Benjamin, who kind of plays in later. But he's the young, the young one. And, uh, and here he is with this special status over him. Uh, verses 5 through 11, I'll just kind of sum up for you. Uh, Joseph basically makes matters worse by telling his family about these two dreams that he's had. In the first, he has this dream in which he and the brothers are out in the field and they're gathering up wheat and they put these sheaves together of wheat. And, and then he says, my sheaf went to the middle and all of you guys' sheaves like, came and bowed down before it. Um, now, they took dreams seriously back then. They, they meant something back then, either something in the future or there was significance to them. And they all kind of understood what, what this meant when he said this. And so they start going, you, you really think, boy, that, that we're going to be bowing down to you, that you're going to rule over us. And, and then the text says, and they hated him all the more. Uh, so they hated him even more after saying those things. Um, and, and Joseph, not being one to take the hint, decides to tell them another cool story uh, about another cool dream that he has. Um, he says in this one that the sun and the moon and 11 stars all bowed down to him. The sun would be his father, Jacob. The moon, more than likely his mother, Rachel. And then all these 11 stars, the brothers, all bowed down to him. Now, that's kind of interesting because actually Rachel, who would be the moon in this, is dead by this point. Unless this is like a flashback. Unless the author is taking us back in time. But, but uh, Rachel would be dead at this point. And so it seems like he may actually be describing that, um, that in like the ancestral line, Joseph is going to be considered greater. Whether the family is living or dead, when it's all said and done, Jacob's going to be greater than all of them. This one he tells not just to his brothers, but to his father, Jacob. And even Jacob's not very happy about that. But the author says, even though Jacob's ticked about it, he, he also kind of keeps that in mind. Like something about that stuck inside his brain from there on out. Verse 12 says this, Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem, and a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. So Jacob sends Joseph to go check on the brothers, again, perhaps kind of in a little bit of a managerial-like role there, to go check on them and bring back report. Um, they're in the Valley of Hebron, is, is what it says, which is further down south in the Promised Land, the land of Canaan. And he sends them, the brothers are up near Shechem, which is 50 miles north of there. So this is a trek that he sends Joseph on to go see them. And Joseph makes his way up there, and he founds out that they're not in Shechem anymore, that they've gone to Dotham, which is actually 14 miles further north. So Joseph goes all the way up there to see them. This is a long journey. Um, commentators have wondered what to do with verses 14 through 17. Why are those in there? 
It, it seems really random, especially when what I said is true. The author is not concerned with giving us every historical detail. He's only concerned with giving us the stuff that helps us understand covenant stuff. So why does Moses think that it's important here to stop and tell you um, not just that Moses goes to Shechem and they're not there and instead he goes to Dotham and finds them. Why does he think it's important to tell you and Joseph's just wandering around lost in a field when all of a sudden this guy shows up and sees him and goes, who are you looking for? And Joseph asks him, he says, oh yeah, I, I heard about this. I heard your brother say they're going to Dotham. Why is that important for him to say that? Um, this is actually always a really great question when you're trying to interpret the Bible. When you're trying to understand uh, a, a particular text or story asking this question, especially when you come upon something that seems a little out of place, that seems a little off, asking, why is this here and nowhere else? Like, why did the, first of all, why did the author put this here at all? And B, why, if, if so, why did they choose to put it in this exact spot? And a lot of times that can give you some really um, big clues as to what's going on. I think that this is written here to show us just how close this story came to not happening. Just how close it came to actually Joseph showing up, not being able to find his brothers, and then probably going home. What are the odds that Joseph goes to Shechem and he's wandering around, kind of lost in the fields, and this guy just happens to be there, shows up, and that guy just happens to have been around his brothers when he heard the brothers say that they were going to Dotham? What are the odds that that happens? And if it doesn't, if Joseph never runs into this guy, what actually takes place? More than likely, he goes back home to his dad and goes, sorry, I couldn't find him. Looked all over, couldn't find him anywhere. But no, like this, this very strange situation shows up where a guy just happens to know and be there. And, and because that happens, Jacob or Joseph ends up going to find his brothers. And because he finds his brothers, some very awful things happen to him. Now, we might say, man, that is so crazy unlucky, but, but they don't buy luck back then. They don't believe in just random chance. They believe in providence. And, and I believe that the author is putting this in here to perhaps show you um, that there's actually providence behind what's about to happen to Joseph, which may sound strange to you. Um, the awful thing that's about to happen to Joseph that, that perhaps God was working to make sure that it did happen. Um, verse 18 they saw him from afar, that's his brothers, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben, that's the oldest, when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he may rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors, or the robe of long sleeves or long length that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So they see him coming, the brothers, and they hate him. And they've always kind of waited for their chance. And here he comes wearing that stupid coat that dad gave him. And, and, and so they, they, they're just talking about how much they hate him and how much they can't stand him. And finally says, what if we just put an end to all of this right here? What we just, like, there's nobody around. What if we just got rid of this problem right now? And, and they decide, yeah, let's go ahead and do it. Reuben, the oldest, for reasons we don't fully know, 
um, decides, hey, hey, let's, let's not do that. And he says, how about we just throw him in this pit? We'll just leave him there. That way his blood's not like on our hands. But, but Reuben's plan is to go back later and save him out. It keeps saying pit. More than likely, this is like a cistern that's been kind of cut out of limestone to collect water during the rainy season so that it can be there for, for uh, watering flocks or for whatever else. This one happens to be dry. And Reuben says, let's go save him. Now, um, in, in a previous chapter, I think it was 35, we see that Reuben does kind of a crazy thing. He actually like sleeps with one of Jacob's concubines. Uh, and it says that Jacob heard about it. And that's kind of all it says. And Jacob heard about it. Um, uh, what that means probably is more than just kind of like a lustful action on Reuben. Uh, like sleeping with Jacob's concubines is, is, is kind of a way of saying like, I'm man of the house now. And, and apparently that did not go over well. So we, we don't know. He could have great motives. It could be, though, Reuben wanting to get back into good graces with his father. Um, so not only do they throw them in a cistern, what do they do beforehand? They take the robe away. They take the cloak away, that symbol of status, that symbol of uh, love that the dad has shown, and then they take that from him. Uh, 25, then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. I like that. You know, he is our brother. It would be crazy for us to kill him. Let's sell him into slavery instead. After all, he is our brother. You know what I mean? I love like the, the moral high ground Judah's taking there. Um, so, uh, and his brothers listened to him. And then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. I don't know why this just occurred to me as I'm in here that they like throw a rope down to Joseph and Joseph has to think in that moment sweet they're letting me out and then they like pull him out and they sell him off to these guys um, they took Joseph to Egypt and when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said the boy is gone and I where shall I go then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No. I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guard. Um, so they're sitting there in Dothan, which actually does happen to sit on the main caravan route from Gilead, which is where they say the Ishmaelites come. The main like caravan or traveling route travels from Gilead to Egypt through Dothan. Um, so they've actually like discovered that even today. And so these Ishmaelites, um, which means they're from who? Ishmael, meaning they're from Abraham, right? These are actually, these would be like third cousins, or depending on how many generations down, third or fourth cousins. These are actually like distant relatives of the brothers that are coming by. Um, actually, 
says two different people there. Ishmaelites, who are sons of Abraham through Hagar, and then uh, Midianites, who are actually also sons of uh, Abraham through uh, Keturah, which is a wife that Abraham took in his old age after Sarah had actually died. So all of these are actually relatives to uh, them, at least distant relatives of some kind. And the text kind of uses their names interchangeably because they're kind of traveling together, it seems. Um, And they sell him off. Um, or actually, yeah, they sell him off, they uh, tear up his robe and dip it in uh, goat's blood and then go and show it to Jacob. Now, this is kind of fascinating. I don't know if there's something to this. There, see, there, there are in Genesis these patterns that play out over and over again, and I, and I don't know always what to make of it, if there's a purpose, um, but these echoes. It's fascinating uh, that Jacob deceived his father using goat skins, and Jacob's sons deceived him using goat blood. Um, just kind of an interesting kind of replay of, of something that happened many chapters ago. The story then leaves off with Joseph in Egypt, a slave in, in the house of a man named Potiphar. And the attention, if you look down, turns actually away from Joseph now to in chapter 38, the entire next chapter is about Judah and his sons and a daughter-in-law and a very bizarre story that comes out of that. Um, now, we're going to get to that. We'll, we'll, we'll tackle that in a couple weeks uh, but again, this is where you're supposed to pause and go, why? But why did the author decide in the middle of the Joseph story to stop and tell us about Judah? Now, part of it is because, again, it's not just the Joseph story, it's the son story. But, but why here does he decide to do that? Um, that's something that needs to be asked and something that hopefully we'll be answering in the next couple weeks for you guys. Um, go to 39 because that's where this story with Joseph picks back up. 39 says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field, so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. So Joseph ends up this slave in Egypt, but the text steps in to remind us that in like the deepest, darkest, bleakest um, place in Joseph's life, it says here, but Yahweh was with him. wants to make sure to point that out. And here we see the first waves of this thing happening where um, this nation, this family that God has selected to be his covenant people already begin to bless the world. Um, that, that like other nations benefit from them, from the blessing that God is pouring onto them. God is blessing Joseph and then everything that's happening around Joseph, including Potiphar's household, is growing and thriving so much so that Joseph becomes like second right under Potiphar and, and Potiphar doesn't worry about anything. He leaves everything to Joseph. And just when it looks like things are finally kind of turning and, and maybe things are going to go right for Joseph, something uh, disastrous happens and everything falls apart. 6b, the second half of uh, verse 6 says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Um, That's kind of interesting, by the way. That phrase, handsome in form and appearance, is only used about one other person in all of the Old Testament. 
Uh, and the one of the person you've actually already heard, this is the exact phrase used when it said, Now Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And, and so it's actually the same word. It can be used handsome or beautiful or attractive, whatever it is. But uh, the only two people that are, that are described this way are Rachel and her son Joseph. Uh, to be kind of strikingly beautiful, strikingly handsome. And it says, And after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And she spoke to Joseph day after day, and he would not listen to her or lie beside her or to be with her. And so she takes these aims at him, Potiphar's wife, to, to seduce him, to draw him into this sexual relationship with him. But he refuses day after day, I will not sin against my master. I will not sin against God in doing these things. But, verse 11, but one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. So after attempting to seduce Joseph numerous times, she finally traps him in the house, demands that he sleep with her, grabs a hold of his cloak, and and he refuses and flees the moment, leaving his cloak behind. And so what she decides to do is um, use that as an opportunity. It's not going to go well for her unless she can turn this on him. And since no one was in the house, it's her word against the slave's word. And so she decides to accuse him of sexual assault. She says he came here to, the word is laugh, but it's, it's, um, it's like mock. Some translations say to make sport of us, to make sport of me. And she says he came here basically, tried to assault me, and I screamed. But if you'll notice the wording in the accusation in verses 14 and 17, um, the wording uh, seems to actually not just blame Joseph, but lay the blame at her husband. 14, uh, 14b, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us or make sport at us. And then in verse 17, when she talks to her husband, she told him the same story, saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. So look what it says in verses 19 through 20. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. Now, I always heard this, and she tells them what Joseph does, and it says his anger is kindled, his anger burns. And I thought, yeah, uh, the guy that you put in charge of the house tries to come in and sleep with your wife, uh, sexually assault her even. And, and of course you're going to be mad, of course you're going to be angry. But, but actually, as you read through that, the more I look at it, the more I think, I don't, I don't think he's mad at Joseph. I think he's actually angry at his wife. Uh, I think 
that he's angry at his wife because of the way that she phrases this, kind of accusing him for being the problem, for bringing this Hebrew in and setting him up here in charge. He, he's got to, like, he can't be dumb. He's got to know a little bit of his wife's character. And he certainly knows Joseph's character because he's been willing to put this man over his entire house. And, and I think he's angry also because he knows that his house has been thriving and blessed ever since Joseph has been in charge. And he's going to lose like the best thing that's happened to his household. Now the final proof to me that he may not actually even believe this story is the fact that he puts Joseph in the king's prison. And a foreign slave has no business being in like the prison of like the political prisoners. Actually, a foreign slave who tries to like sleep with his boss's wife probably isn't even going to prison. Like, he's getting executed. And so, the very idea that he's not executed, and then he's not cast into some, like, deep, dark dungeon somewhere with the rest of the slaves to rob, but is instead put in the king's prison, which is connected, it seems it's like actually connected to Potiphar's house, is actually probably a sign that Potiphar doesn't buy it. But he's in this tough spot where, like, he can't, um, he can't lose face by saying that his wife's a liar who's trying to cheat on him. Like, he can't do that. So he's forced... Um, to part with this and to put Joseph in this prison here. Then it goes on to say, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So once again, we see Joseph in this area that seems bleak. And, and let's not just say seems bleak, is bleak. Um, not only are you um, sold off by your very own flesh and blood, sold into slavery, taken away into a foreign country, never to see your father or your younger brother or anyone you love again. And, and then finally you, you get put in the spot and finally you kind of work your way up and make something out of nothing, even though it's God who seems to be doing it for him. And you finally get yourself to a place of status and all of that is pulled out from underneath you. And now you wind up in a prison in a foreign country. Locked by yourself. And, and the writer comes back in and reminds us once again that Yahweh was with him. And that things start to thrive, which, which sounds great. Sounds really cool when you're reading a story, when you're not the one sitting in the middle of a, uh, of a prison cell in the middle of a foreign country. It's really cool when you read that in like one or two sentences. But try being the guy who spends years stuck in a prison for a crime you didn't commit after being sold off by your own brothers. I wonder if Joseph... Um, is able to tell in this moment? Is he able to say that Yahweh is with him? Does he feel when he's sitting in that prison for a crime he didn't commit? Does he feel like God is with him? Um, if it's really true that God orchestrates these things to some degree, at least allows it to happen, puts it in place where it can, does Joseph, uh, does Joseph feel like God is actually blessing him, like God is actually with him? talk a little bit more about that in just a couple minutes, but we'll take a quick break before Scott gets up here to do that. So two weeks ago, two weeks ago we talked about the presence of God and how, um, how God is present and sometimes we don't even know it. And, and I said that I believe that God is more present than you probably realize and more active than you could ever imagine. Um, last week, we talked about 
when, when God sometimes confronts us um, with our junk and, and forces us to kind of deal with Him, and we have to wrestle with Him. And Drew said something that I think is really insightful and is a really a biblical idea when he said that, that probably the worst thing that could happen to you is, is for you to never recognize your need for God. Is to go through life and everything work out and you're always happy and healthy and successful and wealthy and you just never see your need for God. God, in other words, God gives you what you want. Could be the worst thing that could ever happen to you. And, and so sometimes wrestling with God can, can produce some really good things. Um, this week, specifically going to deal with what happens when you feel like God has abandoned you. And like Drew said, Joseph in this story, there's no real indication in the text that Joseph, Joseph was feeling this way, but um, I can't help but think, in, in, if, you, if you peer into one moment in time and Joseph is sitting in prison, it's been maybe a year and a half, and he's just reflecting back on what's happened over the last several years in his life. I can't help, but if he's human, he has to be at some point wondering, what the heck? Like, where is this God who is supposedly watching over our family? The God that, that my, my dad has talked about, who, who pr- provided for him and watched over him and protected him. Like, where is this God? So, I'll never forget, I was st- standing in my kitchen and... Um, a four-year-old boy, who happened to be my son at the time, um, <laughs> at the time, uh, it's still questionable. Uh, he said, he said these words: "We are getting ready to have dinner, and I don't know, I don't even remember what it was, what my my wife was making, but whatever it was, he didn't want it. Instead, he wanted candy for dinner. Um, and so he said, Dad, I don't want that. I I want candy. Give me candy." For dinner, that's what I want, because I think it was shortly after Halloween or something, I don't know. I want to eat candy for dinner. I said, no, I'm not giving you candy for dinner. And, and I was just kind of like, yeah, no, that's not happening. And he was just like, well, why not? Because that's what I want. And, well, because it tastes good. That's, I want to eat what tastes good. That's kind of his philosophy. Makes sense for a four-year-old. And I said, no, I'm not giving you candy. Well, why not? Because I love you. That's why I'm not giving you candy. And he said, well, stop loving me. And give me some candy. That's what he said. And I love that line because I've thought about that often. Um, in, in a lot of ways, that's, that's me. Like there's times in my life where I don't feel like doing something I know I should do. And so I just don't do it. Like, um, or or I, I feel like doing something maybe I shouldn't do. And so I just go ahead and do it. It's like this, these moments in our life where we, we know, let's say that time as a four-year-old, he didn't know, he didn't understand how, you know, the intricacies of what sugar does to your body and, you know, all that stuff. He didn't know that actually me giving him candy is, is not me loving him, but it's whatever. He didn't understand any of that. He just knows what he feels like is candy in the moment, and, and that's not what he needs. And there's times in my life where I, you know, can honestly say, God, this is what I feel like is happening. This is what I feel like I want from you. And I'm not getting it. And, it, and I'm kind of frustrated by it. 
Um, and so there, I, I got lots of examples, but um, I'll, I'll say one of them is a recent one I, I, I mentioned several months ago to you, that a time in, in, in with my wife and I in my marriage where um, I just was like, I felt really like not talking to my wife. Okay, this it was, it was the the most I felt like just being like a junior higher in a long time. Um, just dealing with you know you know what I feel like I'm the only one that cares and so I'm not gonna talk and I'm just gonna ignore and I'm not gonna you know I'm gonna just pout basically is what I was doing. And and you know it took several days for God to kind of just slap me out of that right. And, and recently I would say just this is an example in my life recently. I really have felt that God is, is well, felt, I, I believe God is leading me to have some intentional time at night. Most of the time I spend with God is in the morning in terms of my, my Bible reading or whatever, but um, I, I think He's been challenging me to spend a few minutes at night just prayerfully reflecting on my day um, before I go to bed. But uh, most nights, I'm not doing it right now. Most nights, I'm like, I'm too tired. It seems like a lot of work, and I don't feel like doing it. And so I'm just going to go to bed. And I'm just going to do what I feel like doing, God, because that's what I feel like doing. And there's something about, um, you know, there, there's something bigger happening. Whenever we do something that we know we shouldn't do, or whenever we don't do something we know we should, whenever we kind of just give in to how we feel, I think it can lead to a lot of problems. And so I was, I've been reading in, in a book recently that I want to introduce you to because I think it's a pretty interesting resource, especially um, right now in, in your time in life. But think about, think about that. What about you? Where, where is it that you give in to feelings? Where is it you give in to your emotions and just kind of let your emotions be in charge? Um, so the book is called The Coddling of the American Mind, Okay. Um, how good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for, for failure. And specifically, these are two professors on a, on a campus that are, that are um, doing research and, and, and talking to other campuses and kind of trying to get their, their minds around what's, what's taking place on, on college campuses in the United States. Notice the conveyor belt of graduates who are falling off a cliff. So like, this is the idea that there's... There's something that we're producing that is leading to failure at some level. And, and so they, they talk about these three, I've just, there's a, just the first three chapters that I'm in. And they, I think they spend the rest of the book breaking down these three things. Um, there's three untruths, that three bad ideas that are kind of being um, pushed on, on you. And it could be parents, it could be cultural, it could be TV, it could be um, the universities themselves. Um, th- there's a lot of kind of reasons behind some of this, but I'll give you one of them. Okay, the one, the one that I think is relevant for tonight is this idea of emotional reasoning. Emotional reasoning. Um, emotional reasoning they define as like a cognitive distortion. Okay, so a cognitive distortion is is something that is, is a way you think in, in which distorts reality. It affects the way you see reality and you believe that the way you think is reality when actually it's not. 
a cognitive distortion. So uh, emotional reasoning as a cognitive distortion is this defined by this. Letting your feelings guide your inter interpretation of reality. So they list several cognitive distortions. Um, they, they list things like um, catastrophizing. So if you, if you all of a sudden, one little thing becomes this big giant thing that is life-ending for, for you and for everyone else. If it's just a little thing and you've just blown it way out of proportion, that's a cognitive distortion. Another one they mentioned is mind reading. If, if, you, if you just somehow, oh, I know that's what he's thinking. Well, did they say that? No, but I know he was thinking it. I know he was. How do you know? I just know. Okay, that's, you know, that's your, you're attempting to, to read somebody's mind and then base your feelings and actions and thoughts on what you think is happening, but you don't know is happening. It's, called, it's a cognitive distortion. And so when, when you, if you were to sit down with a counselor and you're working through issues and problems and you're, you're doing some of these things, emotional reasoning, catastrophizing, mind reading, they would say, okay, so th those are things that we need to work on. Those are things that you need to learn how to critically think about your thinking. You need to question your, your instincts there. You need to question how you naturally feel and examine if it's really true. And, and, a, and a really good counselor would, would help you like, work through that and learn how to not just give in to the things you think. Um, and so in this book, they, they talk about two examples of this. And I just, th I'm really, th this, is a, this is an interesting topic to me. And I, and I didn't think I would ever really get a chance to talk about this book. But I, I think it fits here. Because I think there's some things happening um, in us and around us and in me that I think are worth talking about. But um, this first, first example on, on college campuses that they see happening is this idea of microaggressions. Um, we, we, we've joked about them quite a bit. Um, in fact, that gets thrown around here somewhat jokingly, especially amongst um, the table group leaders. But, but, but what, when they're kind of presenting it and they're talking about it, it's really interesting. So here's, here's what a microaggression is defined by the person who kind of came up with this idea. Brief and commonplace daily verbal, behavioral, or environmental indignities whether intentional or unintentional, that communicate hostility, derogatory, or negative interactions toward others. Okay, so th this, this idea of unintentional hostility or unintentional aggression, is that a thing? Um, what, what this does, what this idea of microaggression, now I'm not saying that there aren't philosophies and beliefs and and, 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 and there, certainly there's bigotry, certainly there's these ideas that exist and need to be dealt with and are wrong and all those things. Um, but what their point is, is this, when, when this kind of idea of unintentional hostility, that language is lifted up like that's a thing, what it does is it puts all the power and all the emphasis on the listener to provide the interpretation. No longer on the person who's saying things. For instance, like, that's the opposite of what we're wanting to do with this book, right? What we're wanting to do with this book is not, hey, you as the reader, you get to define what this means. So whenever you sit down and read it, whatever you think it means is what it means. We go, no, that would be crazy. That would be insane. No, that's not what any author would want you to do. What, 
what we are saying with this Bible is God defines the, intent, the, the meaning. So we want to find out what the author's intended meaning is. Um, with, with what this, this microaggression thing is, it's putting all the power on the listener to, to define the meaning. And I just don't think that's true. Now, that may work out for some of you sometimes, but someday you'll be on the opposite end of that, and you won't like it. So it's, it's what it does is it's putting, um, it's putting all the power on feelings and letting people define reality based on how they feel. He, gives, he goes on and on about examples. Another one is disinviting guest speakers is a popular thing. In fact, he's, he's measured this on, on college campuses. And from like 2003 till, till now, you can see this constant increase of um, guest speakers who are um, banned and disinvited because they have ideas that are dangerous. So, which is a new thing for campuses in America to have, to have ideas be a dangerous thing, because for for most of education, education wasn't about um, something comfortable. It wasn't about making you comfortable. It was about making you think. And so, different ideas, being being forced to wrestle with things that you don't agree with, and being forced to come collide with different ideas that that seem like they're oh. I don't, know how to, I don't know how to handle that. Like, like a Jew and a Christian standing up here talking in, in the Jewish, which I've spent time with Ori, and know what he thinks, knows what he thinks about Jesus. He spent a lot of time. The guy knows the Bible more than most of us in this room. And he'll get up here next week and say why he doesn't believe in Jesus. And that's my Lord and Savior he's talking about, right? So how do I think about that? Should, I, should we ban him from ever speaking because that offends me? Actually, it doesn't offend me. Um, I want to understand it better. But So this, this same thing, again, it's teaching you that if someone has an idea that offends you, um, that, that that offense is causing you harm, therefore it is dangerous. And so again, it's, it's putting you on, it's, it's saying that you're fragile. That you, you can't handle difficult things. And, and that, so we need to protect you from ideas that are, are harmful. And therefore, you, you need to always be around ideas that you agree with. Right? Do you see like, where this idea, this kind of thinking goes? It's, it's, it's connected to this idea of emotional reasoning. Ancient wisdom for, for centuries has kind of dealt with this. Um, in fact, there's a Greek philosopher who wrote in the first and second century, he said this, what really frightens and dismays us is not external events themselves, but the way, but the way in which we think about them. It's not things that disturb us, but our interpretation of their significance. So, in other words, someone can walk up to you and say something really offensive to you, and you can put all kinds of power and significance on what they said to you and let it ruin you. You can let it roll around in your head. You can let, I, I had a guy just yesterday cut me off on the, on the road, heading north on Perkins. Okay, So I, was, I pulled off. I was in the middle lane. And it got really crowded real quick. And so I had this quick opening. So I gunned it and, and went in front of this guy. Apparently he didn't like it. So he was in an old beat-up truck, okay? He, 
he won um, because I wasn't going to get in a fender bender with him. So he, he whipped around me, and then literally, I'm driving down the road. We're, we're going normal speeds. I don't think I made him break barely at all, but I understand. I shouldn't have been in a hurry. So he, he pulls around me, and then he just does this. So where I had to slam on my brakes and go into oncoming traffic in order to get behind him. And, and so it was a really interesting exercise because the whole way home, I'm just thinking about this guy. I'm thinking, what the heck is his problem? I'm thinking lots of things. But then I started recognizing like, okay, I was in a hurry. I shouldn't have been in a hurry. If I wasn't in a hurry, I probably wouldn't have made him so mad, you know. Um, he didn't actually do anything to me. Uh, my car's fine. I'm fine. So it, it was an interesting exercise in thinking about this, this idea of emotional reasoning. Because I, I, there were some times where I was like, okay, I'm going to whip around him and see who this guy is. Maybe I know him. and Maybe I whatever. I don't know. I mean, I started pick, I mean, you just go to crazy town. Um, rage, you know, or whatever it's called. I don't know. Um, it, 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 but it's interesting. It's I, I, I noticed I could give that guy a lot of power and significance on that moment that could ruin me for the rest of that day and my time with my family. And, and I just had to realize, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go there. Here's another one. Um, a guy that wrote in four, sorry, 524. His name was Bothesis, and he was awaiting execution. Okay, He was a... He was a he was a philosopher, a Greek philosopher, and also a, a politician, and he somehow ticked off the current king, and so he was in prison for about a year, waiting to be executed, and this is what he said. Nothing is miserable unless you think it's so. And on the other hand, nothing brings happiness unless you are content with it. He, he actually talks about how, while being in prison, waiting to be executed, he became more thankful in his life, because he started thinking about the time in which he had um, uh, with his family. And he started thinking about and thanking God for what God had provided in that time and who he had provided in his life. And, and, and they, he talked about how his, his countenance over this time changed and he became more grateful and thankful before he was executed. Um, so this idea that... Um, In our life, we should always be happy. We should always um, be excited about things. That, that things should always be going our way. Um, it's, just a, it's just a false idea. and actually isn't even accurate in Scripture. So when, when authors or, or, or popular maybe pastors um, try to present the Bible or God like He is here to make your life better, they're actually they're not being very honest to some, some very real stories that are happening in, in this book. In Joseph's example, if you take a snapshot of those several years where he was sold into slavery and in prison, um, Joseph is living this, this reality. Uh, another example would be several hundreds years later, hundreds of years later, where the Israelites are in prison, or not prison, they're um, enslaved, they're, they're slaves in Egypt. And so for 430 years, we know they were in Egypt. And for most of those years, they were like oppressed slaves, right? Making bricks without straw. So think about year 429. 
And, and some guy, some old man sitting around, and he, all he's known is slavery. And he's heard about years where God spoke through whoever. And, and he goes, yeah, well, who, where is that God now? Year 429. He, he doesn't know what's going to happen. What if he dies that year? And he never gets to see Moses come back and lead them out of Exodus. Um, God seemed to be okay with that. He let it happen. Uh, another one is David. David was anointed king of Israel by, by Samuel in 1 Samuel 16. And then David spends approximately 10 years running for his life in the wilderness. So how, how many of you are, are in your 20s right now? Okay, so David spent, we think, David spent all of his 20s hiding in the wilderness, in the desert, as the anointed king, running from the current king, um, who wants to kill him and tries many times. Okay, that's David's life. David, so somebody turn to Psalm 13. Actually, all of you, if you want, turn to Psalm 13. But I need someone to read it. Just read, somebody read the first two verses of Psalm 13. Yes, Casey. Okay, read verse 2. This is one of the many um, lamenting psalms that David writes. Um, and so you can sense David's pain and, and, and fear and anxiety and, you know, tension. Um, another, another great example is, is Elijah in 1 Kings 19. Elijah is speaking God's truth. Okay, he's saying the things that God's asked him to say to the people he's asked him to say it to. But they want to kill him because of it. And so he takes off and he runs for his life. And in 1 Kings 19, verses 4 and 5, it says, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. So, so here's Elijah. He is on his own. He's alone. In fact, we, he, he feels alone. He says that to God later, and God has to remind him, listen, there's about 7,000 people that aren't bowing their, their knee to, to Baal, so you're not alone. I have a remnant. I'm in charge here. I'm okay. Get up and eat. But in that moment, Elijah's like, God, just kill me. Like, you've asked me to, 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 to do this thing, and, and nobody wants to hear it, and they're trying to kill me before just take my life. Jeremiah is another example. Jeremiah had a ministry where he literally had no converts. He was, just, he was just bad news all the time. That's his, that was his ministry. It was to people in Israel who were, who were uh, abandoning God's covenant and worshiping idols, and he was calling them back to him and calling them to repent, and no one listened to him. That's why they call him the weeping prophet, because he cried all the time. Right? 
Um, Habakkuk 1 is another example. Habakkuk 1, is a, Habakkuk was a prophet to the people of Israel who, who were also in exile, and he says, How long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear me? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Um, I could go on. So, Paul, how many times was Paul beaten and in, in, in prison and for, for doing the, the things that God asked him to do? Right? And so you don't think Paul had moments where he kind of, did I really see Jesus on the road? Like, or did I just get something in my eye for a couple days? Like, what was that? Um, no, like, w- what I want you guys to see is there's going to be a moment. I don't know if you've had it. I don't know if you're there right now. There's going to be a moment where you are feeling like God has abandoned you. Like God isn't there. Like you can't hear Him. Your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. You you don't know what He wants. I'm just telling you, this is just, you're in good company. And it's actually, just like last week, it's actually really good for us to get into places where we have to go, okay God, I don't, I don't, I'm not feeling your presence. I'm not seeing your blessings. Um, help me to, help me to see you. Like that, those are good places to be. Those develop things in us that um, take us deep, deep, deep with God. So here's a question um, for you. Because I think a lot of times, the reason we feel like God has abandoned us is, is because we're not getting what we think we deserve. And so, think, think about this kind of on your own. What does God owe you? What has God promised you, actually? What has God promised you? What, what, if, what if God really is a tyrant, okay, who is all-powerful but not all-loving? What would... What would um, what would you do about that? I think some would go, well, then I wouldn't believe in a God like that. I wouldn't believe in a God who is all-powerful and not all-loving. But <laughs> what is that going to do? Think about it. Think about, like, if you just decided to not believe in God, would that remove God from the picture? So sometimes I think we think about God as like this idea that I can choose to accept or not. And if I choose not to accept, then, then it's, just, it's just a choice. But if God, if God is all-powerful and not all-loving, you can't escape it. I can't either. I'm going to do what He says, regardless, because He's all-powerful. But luckily, that's not the God that we serve. That's not the God that has revealed Himself to us. And so, I guess the question is, it, like, if, if you find yourself in a place where you don't know where God is, um, you giving up on God doesn't take God out of the equation. It doesn't remove Him. You, you, you abandoning Him doesn't make this any better. So then, then what? You have, to, you have to come up with another option. You have to deal with Him somehow. Because He's real. He's not an idea. Um, and, and why should God's plans for us always include our health and our wealth and our happiness and success? Why, why is that? Why do, we, why do we believe that? Those are kinds of things 
I think you should question. So lastly, another book, another resource that I think is really good. It's called Humble Roots. Um, I haven't read all of it. I've, I've heard really good things about it. I've read a portion of it that I want to read to you. Um, but she has a very, this, this lady, Hannah Anderson, has a, has a really interesting um, explanation for why we believe our feelings and, and buy into our emotions and let our emotions kind of rule us. And her answer, her, her reason is because of pride. Like it, it's because of our pride that we allow our emotions to be in control. So listen to what she says. She says, the premise of this book is that much of our emotional instability is rooted in pride. Not simply pride in our intellect or pride in, in physical bodies, but a pride that prioritizes our emotions as the source of truth. To understand this, we need to look further than to our culture. Look no further than to our culture's um, fixation with emotional authenticity. Authenticity, as we've come to understand it, celebrates telling it like it is and encourages you to be true to yourself. But today, being true to yourself doesn't mean making an honest evaluation of yourself. It means embracing your emotional experience of the world as truth. And so she goes on and says, like, what, what if your emotions are actually the thing that's causing you chaos? What if your emotions are the things that you are enslaved to? And so she proposes humility as the answer. And she says, here's how humility brings rest to our internal life. Humility teaches us that God is greater than our heart. That's actually 1 John 3.20. I didn't know that verse was there, honestly. I mean, I... If you would have said, God is greater than our hearts, I'd go, well, yeah, of course. Um, but that's actually scripture. It's 1 John 3.20. Take that, Disney. Um, God is greater than our hearts. Disney has been teaching you guys from your, when you were this big to follow your heart. And the Bible's been saying not to. So, you know, your choice. But uh, take that. So, uh, humil- here's, she goes on. Humility teaches us that we don't have to obey our emotions because... The only version of reality that matters is God's. The only version of reality, of your reality, is what God thinks of it. That's what, that's what ultimately matters. And that's what you should be giving weight to and thinking through. And so, I, I don't want to resolve this for you guys. I think next week, and actually, no, two, three, I don't know. Whenever we get back to Joseph's story, because we have a couple weeks, um, it's going to help us resolve this. But I do want to give a verse, the very first verse I've ever memorized was Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Um, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, I think, is an antidote to emotional reasoning. And it's trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. And in all your ways, submit to Him, and He will direct your paths. And so as the band is coming up to kind of lead us in a time of worship, I want us to um, just spend some time. Maybe look up that verse. Maybe write it out. 
Um, but just spend some time thinking about ways in which you naturally just kind of give into your emotions and, um, and take that to God. Let me pray and then we'll, we'll get started. God, thank you for your word, your truth. I pray, God, that we would come to see it and believe it more than even our own um, feelings. We would trust you more than ourselves. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.